Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Anyone who's listened to A Long Time in Finance knows that Neil loves a mega project. The HS2 high-speed railway, total waste of money. My favourite story. (laughs) Nuclear power plants. Just don't get me started. Gigantic IT schemes. Dull. Basically, the best thing to do with a big project is never to break ground in the first place. Am I being fair, Neil? Up to a point, yeah. You don't believe in any of them, right? No, I I do. do. No, some of them have got to be done. But some of them are just vanity projects which should never start. Well, our guest today has made a business of studying large projects. Bent Fleifberg is a professor at Oxford and the world's leading mega project expert. He is also the author, together with Dan Gardner, of How Big Things Get Done, a fascinating book that looks at the history of building everything from the Sydney Opera House to Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport. And he's here today to share some of his wisdom with us. So welcome, Ben. Many thanks. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, People often talk about an iron law of mega projects, which is that $1 billion plus projects, bridges, dams, railways and so on, will always go over time and budget and yield fewer benefits than forecast. Your book's a kind of refutation of that principle, which is encouraging. But can you explain a bit about how you got into this area and what led you to take this more optimistic view? So you mentioned T5 and the Sydney Opera House, and those are both construction projects, of course. And and we actually started this work looking at construction projects, specifically infrastructure projects. But today we are studying all kinds of projects, including software projects and uh, change management projects, IT projects, basically any type of project. We have our main focus on big projects, but we also need to understand small projects in order to study whether size actually makes a difference. The iron law that you refer to, which is over budgets, over time, under benefits, over and over again, that's a characteristic of big projects. That's just how they unfold on the average. And some of them with very, very large cost overruns and very large delays and very large benefit shortfalls. So it's a bit shocking, you know, when you hear the numbers the first time that only eight and a half percent of projects come in on time and on budgets. And if you include on benefits, then it's only half a percent. So one out of 200 projects actually accomplishes what it set out to do That's a depressing statistic. Actually, we didn't believe it at first. We thought it might just be an artifact of the data collection and so on. So we collected more data and we still got the same results. Then we collected more data and we still got the same result. Then colleagues started to get in on on the game and, and, and collected their own independent data, which showed similar results. So it really is an iron law. That's just the way it is. So people sometimes say, well, projects always go wrong you know always is an exaggeration there is actually one out of 200 that is right and now we have so many projects that we can actually study the successes well your tone of the book is is optimistic you're not kind of uh, harping on the fact that uh, such a small proportion of projects do succeed but you draw lots of comparisons between projects in the book to show why one was successful and the other was less so so one very striking striking example 
was that of the Sydney Opera House versus the Guggenheim Museum built by Frank Gehry in Bilbao. And perhaps you can say a bit about that and how it fits into your overall thesis. So the comparison of the Sydney Opera House and the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao is a case study made in heaven. These are actually considered the two most prominent buildings of the last century. And one is, has been an extreme failure in delivery and the other has been an extreme success. Both of them have been aesthetically and commercially very successful, you know, even though the Sydney Opera House has one of the largest cost overruns ever. It's making so much money, you know, for itself and for Sydney. You know, it could easily compensate for that, uh, of course. So it's not that it didn't pay off in the end. It's just that it's an opera house unsuited for opera. It's an opera house that destroyed the career of the architect. So most people don't even know who the architect is of the Sydney Opera House. And if they do, they're probably Danish or architect, you know. Can we just say, just for the listeners' benefit, I, it is Jörn Utzen. I don't Utzen. know if I want to reveal the secret. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is Jörn Utzen, my fellow Dane Jörn Utzen, who actually never saw the building finished. It was hard for him. Let's put it that way. He left the project mid, midway through construction. He was forced out by the New South Wales government. And never returned. He never saw the building, even though uh, he was invited back 30 years later to uh, amend some of the designs. But anyway, terrible failure delivery wise. And it, it, it can't do what it's supposed to do, like be a venue for hosting big operas. Whereas the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, uh, tick every box of success, you know, it was built on schedule. It was built a little below budget uh, and uh, it's making a lot more money than it, anybody imagined. And they didn't have to take many years before it happened, like with the Sydney Opera House. So they are completely opposite. Guggenheim built in, in uh, four years. Uh, the Sydney Opera House took 16 years, you know, just to take one major difference. And yeah. they knew exactly what they were going to build when they started the Guggenheim in Bilbao. They didn't know what, they didn't have finished drawings, you know, when they started the Sydney Opera House. They didn't know what they were building, basically. They just started. Frank Gehry is the architect of, this, of the Guggenheim Bilbao. He had simulated everything on computer. He had already built the building on a computer before he built it in reality. So he knew what was going to happen very precisely. Of course, they couldn't do that with the Sydney Opera House. They didn't have those kind of computers. But these projects are so different. And one of them, you know, 1,400% cost overrun. One was built like 4% under the budget. Big difference. Yeah, you say, you say in your book that uh, one of the questions that you should always ask at the beginning is, why are you doing this? And you make the point that Gary basically asked Bilbao, what the hell do you want to do with this space in uh, Bilbao, this museum? Can you just expand a bit on, on how important that was in these two cases and, and why it led to such different outcomes between the two projects? Yes, that's a good question. And it's extremely important. Uh, so Gary always starts with uh, asking his clients, why do you want to do this? And actually, when he asked in Bilbao, they said, we want to do it because we want to have a Sydney Opera House in Bilbao. <laughs> so the government in Bilbao said, we want you to do something for Bilbao that the Sydney Opera House did for Sydney. Okay, Gary said, we have to do something like in Sydney. We have to build an outstanding building from scratch in a prominent location. And Gary actually found a place. They, the story that Gary tells, you know, and that he has told me and many others is that they had lunch during one of his first visits to Bilbao. Maybe even the very first, uh, they went up 
Bilbao is like in a river valley. They went up on the hill. They looked down, and Gary spotted an empty lot with a derelict old uh, factory on it that wasn't in use, right by a bridge, exactly like the Sydney Opera House is by the Harbour Bridge in Sydney. And they investigated very quickly, and they found out yes, they could actually buy that derelict place, and and that became the location of the Bilbao Museum. In Sydney, uh, it was very different. So there was a competition that Jan Utzon won, and he had made a design that he didn't know how to build. So by the time he won the competition, he actually didn't know whether his design could be built. And that's the point you make in the book. Do your planning so you don't have to redo things halfway through when it's most expensive. Now, we've got an example which I think Neil wants to talk about, which is the, the HS2 railway, which was recently truncated. The project has already been salami sliced away since it was launched in 2010 or so. And it's now pretty much just going from London to Birmingham. This project, which was the brainchild of now Lord Adonis under the Labour government, was fundamentally misconceived from the start. And the thing that I cannot understand and could not understand at the time was how on earth it ever got to the point where it was going to be built, because it was always going to be a financial disaster. And it just looked like a classic example of a vanity project from an administration that did not dare do anything to stop it because it would be seen as a a national embarrassment. How true is that in your view? It might be true, I have to say that, but I haven't seen solid documentation that this could not be a viable project. Of course, it cannot be viable the way that they have now built it or built parts of it or are building parts of it. But if they had done it right from the outset, I actually don't see that it's a given that it couldn't become viable. I mean, the population density in the UK is pretty high. The distance between cities are pretty good. So if France could make it work for some of their lines, why shouldn't the UK be able to make it work? However, that's a strictly technical thing where you just look at would enough passengers get on board. You have to consider that this is an, a rail line that has to go through very built up areas, very sensitive areas, both heritage wise, environmental wise, and a lot of people living close to uh, the track and so on. So those are issues that might be enough to decide not to do something like this. But I actually don't see it as a given that you couldn't make a high speed rail line in the UK viable. So what did they get wrong? They did everything wrong. And of course, I would agree today that it would have been better if it hadn't been started. That's for sure. The main thing that has gone wrong is that you've had, as you've noticed, many different governments in the UK recently, and they have <laughs> changed their mind all the time uh, about this project. And that's the worst thing you can do about a project. If you have to go through considerations like this, you have to do it beforehand, before you start digging. Like we talked about before, it doesn't make any sense to start changing your mind once you're in the middle of a project. That's the worst thing you can do that's the road to ruin. And that's what, is, what has happened here. It's the main thing. There's also things about the management of the project could have been better if it had been, uh, it been thought better through and if you hired the right management and they had stayed in place instead of changing all the time. But that's actually a minor thing compared to the political changes. So I would say for HS2, the main thing is that the politicians who are the ultimate decision makers on a project like this have kept changing their minds. Now we're building it. Now we're not. Now we're building the whole thing. Now we're not. Now we're building half of it. It seems to me that people don't realize what the consequences are. So take a simple thing like Euston Station. So the line is supposed to end in Euston Station in London. And depending on whether you build the whole thing or only half of it to Birmingham, Euston Station will look very different. 
So you actually need to know this. Now the plan is to build Houston Station in a way so it only has capacity for the trains to Birmingham, obviously, because that's what the, what's the decision now. However, that means that you can change your mind later and then all of a sudden extend it without it being extremely costly, you know, to make changes to Houston Station. So these are the kinds of things you need to be clear about before you start. But do you think that the original cost estimates were basically what the politicians thought that they could get away with? Or do you think that there was any reality in those original cost estimates, which I have to say at the time looked ludicrously low given the scale of the project? Those estimates were not realistic. But I can't answer the first part, you know, whether the politicians thought they were realistic. It would require me getting inside their heads, you know, and we don't have research methods for doing that yet. Most of the time, decision makers, politicians in this case, are not willing to discuss things like that because it it has difficult ramifications for them, you know, if they tell the truth. We now look at those, those cost estimates and see that they were ludicrously low. But would there have been a metric you could have pointed to in 2010 and said 35 billion or whatever it was is just unrealistic for this sort of project? Of course, and we did that. I mean, we've done that for many projects around the world, including for HS2, actually. So is that what you told them, that there was a very low chance? A bit later, we, we actually did calculations like that and, and, and told them how likely they were to be able to do it on budget and how much they needed to increase the budget to have a higher likelihood. Um, one of the <laughs> quotes of yours that I like a lot is um, the underestimating costs in public works projects. Is it an error or a lie? Yeah, And I think that absolutely encapsulates the, the problem with these big public projects. I fear that uh, it's a sort of uh, wishful thinking, isn't it? Let's not call it a lie. But uh, that is the big problem in my view. When I published that article with error or lie in the title, I was invited to give presentation. And when I talked about it as lying, something happened that had never happened in my academic career before. People would uh, hiss or jeer at me, you know, when I was giving presentation. <laughs> Call that a result. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a result, uh, but it was quite unpleasant and uh, had never happened to me before. And it wasn't normal. It wasn't common to study lying. This was in the in the 2000s. Uh, mm. And it wasn't common to study lying at that time. Now it is, of course. Now, now lying in politics is, is a huge subject for obvious reasons. But at that time, it wasn't. So it was quite unusual. And, and I got some uh, blowback for that. Now, you say in your book that... Uh... We're going to need to do a lot more big infrastructure projects in future. But I'm interested, do you think that this side of the task, the estimates of costs and the estimates of time and so forth, have improved? The planning is improving for these projects, or do you think we've still got a long way to go? I have bad news for you. If you don't like these projects, the future is not for you. We're just going to have we're going to have so many more because there's no way we can solve the problems of the climate crisis and so on without building a lot more big projects. But as you know, we actually recommend building them with Legos, like with small units. Like we say, build big from small. So you need to be able to break your down down your projects into basic building blocks, and that's how to succeed with it. Can you give us an example of that, just very quickly? Yeah, easy, easy. The solar cell is the basic building block, and it, that's that's what you build on. You get a panel by putting lots of solar cells on a piece of an on a panel. Then you have a solar panel. Then you put a lot of those together. You have an array. You, you have a lot of arrays. You have a solar farm. 
if you need more power, which we do, then you build another farm and another farm and another farm. It's pure replication, which is one of the reasons that the price of electricity produced by solar has dropped dramatically, you know, following something similar to Moore's law, where the costs just keep coming down and the capacity going up. Wind power is similar. It's not quite as modular, but it's very modular. Like a wind turbine is basically four building blocks. It's a foundation. It's a tower. It's a nacelle where the turbine itself is and its wings. Click, click, click. You have those four elements click together and you actually have a, a turbine that is ready to produce electricity. And that is done. Those are put up within 24 hours these days. Right. Huge wind turbines. So those are examples that they really work. And you ask whether things are getting better. better I'm saying yeah. in, in the sectors where you are able to do that, things are getting better. They have seen what it takes to do projects, including very big multi-billion pound projects, how to do them efficiently and to deliver them on schedule and on budget. Whereas in other types of projects that do not lend themselves to this kind of modularity. So that would be something like nuclear power plants, nuclear storage, even worse. The Olympic Games is another type of project <laughs> we study that they seem to reinvent the wheel every time they're doing them. Big hydroelectric dams, same thing. You know, they are built on location. They, they are bespoke for the setting that they are in. And they can't be standardized in the same way. So they're at one end of the scale and they keep underperforming. At the other end of the scale, we have projects and businesses that understand how to do this. Electric vehicles is an example. They're totally modular. Batteries are modular, of course. Elon Musk, I know he's a very controversial person, but one of the things he understands is modularity. That is actually a key explanation of his success with uh, both Tesla and SpaceX. Obviously, you've pointed to certain sectors where it's naturally easy to modularize, such as solar cells and so forth. But can everything be modularized? Can you actually take some of those harder to do sectors, which we might have to do in future, which are difficult and make them more amenable to your Lego approach? Everything can be modularized to an extent, but everything cannot be fully modularized. So there are degrees of modularization and different project types lend themselves to modularization to different degrees. But with that is said, I would say that most project types don't exploit this as much as they could, not nearly as much as they could. And they really should, you know, it is the secret to uh, improving performance and the secret to uh, making projects that today are just a bad idea to do to make them a good idea to do. Modularization can be used as a way of thinking on any type of projects. There's always something that you can standardize more and that you can, if you think about it, you can think about next time we do this, how do we just replicate what we already did? Very often product managers don't even think about that. There's this disease that they would like to do new things every time. This is very normal, actually, for engineers. Engineers love new stuff. They love to push the, push the technology, to, to push the technological envelope, as they say, and do something that is different and better and faster next time. But they overlook the fact that this means that they constantly are doing new product development, which is one of the most risky things that you can do. And they would be much better off with incremental improvements and, and trying to replicate what they already did as much as they can. Of course, things change over time. You can't freeze things and do things exactly the same way you did for five years ago, for instance. Technological change is, is way too 
rapid and pervasive for that, but you can definitely think, uh, rethink projects and think about, okay, what are the elements that we can reuse from the projects we already did? What can we learn from these and how do we just do them again? And then by doing them again, using the experience that we gained from doing them the first time and therefore being able to do it faster and cheaper than we did the first time. The other criticism, obviously, that's made of big projects is that if you look at the British experience, is the stop-start problem. We tend to do a project like Crossrail and then we don't do another one for 10 years, by which stage everyone's forgotten how they did the last one. Is there a solution to that? There is a solution to that. And and, and, and I would say this is a government thing. So uh, uh, industry is not going to be able to take care of that problem. That's a government thing. You need to decide in a country, and not just the UK, any country, you need to decide... Is this a, a capability that we want to have in, in, in our country that we are able to build projects like Crossrail, for instance, or nuclear power plants or wind farms or whatever? And if you want that, you can't do stop-go. You cannot, you cannot stop a business for 10 years and then assume that the skills will still be there. It means that you have to rebuild it again, and that is very expensive. A good example of this is actually in Denmark. At one stage, they decided to um, connect the island that Copenhagen is on with the mainland, with the longest suspension bridge in the world at the time that they built it, and the second longest underwater rail tunnel in Europe uh, after the channel tunnel between the UK and France. So a huge project uh, by Danish standards, uh, the biggest ever in Danish history, 17 times larger money-wise than the largest project that was built in Denmark to date. So all of a sudden, there's a step change, 17x, you know, and uh, there was a lot of problems and the tunnel flooded, the tunnel caught fire. It had a cost overrun of 220%, more than twice the cost overrun on the channel tunnel. So they didn't get better. I mean, one would have thought that once you build the channel tunnel, then you learn from that. And the next one you build, which was the one in Denmark, would be better and cheaper. Nope, uh, the opposite happened. But the Danish government decided that they weren't finished doing these kinds of projects. Now they wanted a bridge and a tunnel between Sweden and Denmark. That was the next thing. But they actually faced it so that once they finished the Great Belt Link that the first project was called, they would start the other one. So you, you had the experience now. You had, and, uh, you had learned from the first project and you used that experience on the second project. And then after that, now they are, are building a connection between Denmark and Germany, the Fehmarn Belt Link, which is going to be the world's longest cotton cover tunnel. So by staggering things like that and deliberately timing things so that you don't get a bubble where everything is built at the same time, but you actually stagger it so, so that you have like 20, 30, 40 years where you're doing this kind of thing. You keep the industry going and it gets better and better. And you can see it on the on the performance of the projects. I'm not sure we have anywhere which is suitable for another channel tunnel. <laughs> but one of the things which I thought it would obviously be a new approach for the construction industry. And I note in your book, one of the points you make is don't ever do anything new. It's the way <laughs> it's the road to ruin. Uh, that seemed to be a, a bit that, of a that, uh, that was a bit of a depressing conclusion, Ben, if I may say that, so. That is a bit of a depressing conclusion. And uh, I think you are exaggerating a little bit here. What, what we are saying is that if you do something new, make sure that you realize that this is new. Of course, somebody has to do new stuff and there's actually no choice. I mean, uh, given the fact that, uh, that things change as quickly as they do in the world today, you will be forced to do new stuff even if you tried not to do it. So that's going to happen. But 
you need to be very deliberate about it and you should only do it when you need to do it and you should be totally clear about this is what we're doing now. So now our risks are much higher because we're doing something new instead of replicating something we've done before. You can also make in innovation incremental. So you don't have to make everything new at the same time. And again, wind and solar are excellent examples of this. They are innovating all the time. So the wind turbines have become taller and taller. They actually it seems like they reached their size now where they say they don't want to go taller right now, at least, you know, because they're as big as they need to be right now. But this has been a, a process over 30 years, you know, where, where the innovation has been incremental by making the turbines taller and the blades longer and the turbines produce more. So the, the turbine itself produce more electricity. So you get more per unit. So innovation is possible in an incremental fashion. It's not that, that uh, everything new stops. And we definitely never meant to say that we should only do things that have been done before. That would be a ridiculous <laughs> statement. Not even, not, not even possible. Well, Bent, it's been great talking to you. And um, let's hope, I certainly hope that you'll, I don't know what you would regard as success, but uh, one would hope that, you know, if you can double the number of successful projects, we'll get to 1%, which given the number we're going to have to do, but what sort of success rate do you think is possible to achieve? So this is not about me, obviously. A lot of people are working on this and it's going in the right direction. People are beginning to understand that the fundamental differences between different project types and you need to focus on the project types that are actually uh, amenable to what we are talking about here. I would say that we can get to a high success rate, you know, like much more than 1% for sure. Okay. And uh, the encouraging thing is that the successes are in exactly in the sectors that we need them. So we need success in the climate sector right now. If we don't have success in the climate sector, like let's say if we build climate projects the way we built, you know, some of the projects that don't work, then we wouldn't be able to solve the problems we need to solve in relation to the climate crisis. But luckily, it actually turns out that the climate projects are the ones that are really taken off and are really conducive and are really successful on the criteria that we are talking about here. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.